Unfortunately, we do not have a children's church today. Apparently, the uh, vacation season is upon us and we at, we're scrounging and found no volunteers. So, uh, if your kids get wiggly or something and you want to take them out in the back foyer, go ahead. I understand that I have little kids too and it won't bother me. You can get up and leave and I'm just, I'll just do what I do. So, uh, if you'd like to help out with children's church or children's ministries, we'd love for that too. So, if you'd like to do that, uh, you can sign up for that downstairs after uh, the, the service. I think there's a table down there for children's ministries. Anyway, Luke chapter 24, and today we're studying verses 44 to 49. It's on page 1048 in your pew Bible. And actually, let me start reading in verse 36 just to set the stage for this text. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Let me ask you a question. Is there an overarching meaning and purpose to human life? Is there an overarching story that ties it all together? Or is life just random? And do things happen in life without any direction or purpose or meaning? And and it's like life just kind of bounces around and it's chaotic and there's no significance to the events of life that happen except for the personal significance that we attribute to things. Is that how it is? Or is there significance to life? And and I think that today, in our postmodern culture, people tend to veer toward the latter. That that people don't see today that there's a coherence and meaning to life except for the personal meaning that we each give it, which varies from person to person. Uh, Philosophers sometimes talk about this idea of a meta-narrative. And have you heard that phrase? All it means is, well, you know what a narrative is. That's a story. A meta-narrative is a as a total, totalizing kind of story that encompasses and explains everything. So, so it explains for all people everywhere what life is about. And the postmodern mood in which we find ourselves, I think at the very heart of postmodernism, is a hostility toward meta narratives. 
This idea that there's something that explains everything is just laughed at. People don't even give it the time of day nowadays. Of course there's not one story. There's just lots of individual personal histories and stories that vary from person to person. And so really, the, the worldview of postmodernism is just kind of crazy and chaotic and you try to survive. You know, I was thinking about the postmodern view of the world. This image kept coming to my mind. I was like, I don't know if I should use that, but I, I've kind of worked it in my sermon. Um, there was this 1980s uh, movie I saw. It, it was kind of a, one of those spooky horror movies. I, unfortunately, I watched these movies when I was a teenager. I shouldn't have done it. But, but this one movie, it, it really freaked me out. It was called Poltergeist. Did you ever see that? I, I still get the willies, and I get up in the middle of the night. I just think, you know. and, and basically, it's you know typical spooky movie, haunted house. This house that has some evil, malevolent presence within it, and and for some reason, this spooky presence is um, centered in the kids' playroom. That's where it kind of comes out. And so there's this really disturbing scene where the parents open up the door to the playroom and in it the, there's this kind of glow, this evil, sinister presence and all the toys in the playroom are levitating and they're just like... So it's just kind of like a tornado or a whirlwind in the room just spinning things around out of control. And I thought, you know, that's such a great picture of the postmodern view of life. There's no meaning, no direction, no purpose. It's just chaos. And we're in this room, and there's kind of a sinister undertone to it all, but there's no meaning to it. And really the goal of life is don't get hit by something. You know, that's, that's the purpose of life is survive, do your best, like the family with the poltergeist in their house. is like try to be a normal family even though it's crazy and weird things are happening and it's all out of control. But it doesn't mean anything, and you can't explain it. You just try not to get hit by stuff in life. And you try to survive. I talked to a guy, um, not anyone in this church or around here, but someone I know who uh, lost his son, 14-year-old son, in a vehicle accident. And uh, so I was talking to this dad, and I expressed my condolences to him, and he was just very quiet. So I was, I decided to be quiet too, and just kind of be there with him. And um, and after a little while, he spoke. He said, "You know, by the way, you don't have to say anything," which I thought was kind of an interesting comment. And I, and he said, "Because there's nothing to say." He says, there's no explanation. This, this doesn't mean anything. And I thought, you know, that's, that's the heart of our, our culture today. Is it doesn't mean anything. It's just stuff that happens. You hope it doesn't happen to you. And you cope as best you can. And some people cope with alcohol and drugs and whatever relationships. Some people cope by just being busy, earning money, climbing the ladder. But we just try to get through life and hope things don't happen to us that are uncomfortable. Um, and, and that's this, this sort of hopeless view of life where there's no meaning and purpose. It's just chaotic. But here we have Jesus in Luke chapter 24 speaking to His disciples about purpose and meaning and intentionality to life that's just amazing. You know, the disciples, they're a little bit sideswiped by all this. I don't want to be anachronistic. I mean, the disciples weren't postmodern people, but they had had something happen to them. Jesus was crucified. And so they thought the story was going along a certain direction. They thought that their lives were going a certain way. And then something came out of nowhere, hit them, and, and now Jesus is, was dead. And they're like, wait, this isn't what we thought was supposed to happen. This isn't how it was supposed to play out. And then they go to the tomb and it's empty and they're totally confused. As you know, if you've been here the last couple of Sundays, one of the through lines connecting chapter 24 is the, the befuddlement of the disciples. They are lost and confused and 
just bewildered. And Jesus speaks into the midst of their situation. He says, the things that are happening here are not random and meaningless. That there is a purpose, that there is a divine meta-narrative that God is writing. That is in motion. And my death is actually the climax and culmination of God's purposes in the death of Christ and His resurrection. And so, just look at the story here. Verse 44, He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. I can almost, I don't know, when I read that, I kind of hear a little bit of exasperation in Jesus' voice. Like, I kept telling you guys this. But <laughs> you didn't get it. That everything in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, what's that? That's what we call the Old Testament today. So, the Hebrew Scriptures, which is what they had, the New Testament wasn't written yet. So, everything in the Scriptures about me had to be fulfilled. And then verse 45, he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. I'm going to summarize the Old Testament for you. The Christ will suffer and rise on the dead from the th- rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And so Jesus is like, you guys know that uh, uh, Hebrew Scriptures, you know, that you've been taught since you were little kids in synagogue school? You remember that? Yeah. It's about me. There's a story that God has been telling. And sometimes it's quiet and it's under the surface and you can't see it if you're not looking for it. But God has been telling a story and it's now reaching fulfillment in Christ. When I was in college, uh, I had a Bible class. And in my Bible class, we had to read this book. It was kind of a summary of the Old Testament. It had a great title. The title of the summary of the Old Testament was On the Way to Jesus. And I thought, what a great way to sort of understand what the Old Testament is all about. It's on the way to Jesus. It's the story of God's purposes in the world that culminate in Jesus. And, you know, maybe it would be helpful if I just stop for a minute and we remind ourselves of the story. Because, you know, we keep talking about the meta-narrative and what God's doing in the world. But what is He doing? What's the story? And maybe it would just be helpful to stop and for a few minutes review the story of the Old Testament. I'm not going to obviously be able to do the whole Old Testament, but at least give you the the basic skeleton of the story. Let's remind ourselves of how God is planning and, and what He's doing in the world. So, how does the story begin? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. First verse of the Bible. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that's where the story starts. It starts with God, and no one's created Him. He's God. That's what it means to be God. You're self-existent. You have life in yourself. And God, in His joy and overflow, creates the world and the universe. He creates stars and moons and meteorites and nebula, and He creates grass and dahlias and uh, oak trees, and He creates chickens and dogs and giraffes, and, and he, he makes this wonderful world that we experience. And then as the pinnacle of creation, what does God create? Man. Human beings. He creates us. And so we are, I like to think in, in the book of Genesis, human beings, I call them cosmic middle management. All right? Because God has, He's the Lord, He's the CEO over it all, and the President, and the Board of Directors, and everything, and all the shareholder. That's God. And then there's the world that He's made, and then he's, He makes human beings, and as it says in Psalm 8, made them a little lower, the angels, crowned them with glory and honor, and puts human beings as the stewards and caretakers over this creation. So that was the original plan. You know, what's the purpose of human life? Why are we here? It's all right there. Our purpose is to glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and to then to be His servants to carry out His will in the world. Which, 
I can't think of a more wonderful, meaningful existence. What is more purpose and meaning than to know the Creator and to be His servant in the world? That's amazing. That's what God made us to be. But then, of course, you know the story. Something went terribly wrong. And we weren't happy just being middle management. We wanted to be the CEO. And so we all staged a walkout, a hostile takeover of the company. Well, we tried anyway. And, and we said, God, you know, we don't want to follow your will. It's not about you. We want it to be about us. We want it to be God. We want to control our own lives. We want to tell God what he should or shouldn't do. And so uh, Adam and Eve ate from that forbidden fruit, which is really a picture of that which is the prerogative of God alone, that knowledge of good and evil. And we said, we want what God has. We want to, to be God's. And that's the essence of the biblical word sin, which we don't say a lot except in church, but it's a great word. And it just means uh, it's that rebellion against God. That's the theological meaning of sin, um, where, where we break God's laws and we go our own way to become our own gods. <clears throat> and so because of that sin entering the world, sin is like a needle. And when it punctured the fabric of creation and entered the world, it pulls behind it this dark, destructive thread and that thread, as sin enters the world, suddenly racism and poverty and dysfunction and brokenness enter the world and evil enters the world and uh, poverty and uh, you know, just everything pours into creation. And Satan g- gains a foothold in the world and ultimately the thread of sin pulls with it the judgment of God, which is the worst part of all. And so it all comes rushing into the world. And now the world that God made goes from being this wonderful thing where God rules over us and we carry out His will in creation. And it suddenly becomes the poltergeist room. And that's the world. It's crazy. And it doesn't make any sense. And I I do think that's um, one of the aspects of postmodernism that does kind of resonate. Is I think in some ways postmodernism is a description of what we call in Ecclesiastes life under the sun. Life without meaning. That's, that is what life is like. If there's no God and we're cut off from God, then yeah, there is no meaning and you know, we can't know anything and there's no hope. And so that's, that's this world that we've entered, this chaotic world. And meaning has gone out. Evil and sin and destruction have come in and meaning and hope have gone out of the world. <clears throat> but in the midst of all that, this is the best part, is that in the midst of it, God does something new. The same God who spoke creation to existence speaks again. And this time He speaks a promise. And He begins to promise that He is going to do something to overcome evil in the world and win a people for Himself. And the first promise actually comes in Genesis chapter 3. Could you put a bookmark here in Luke? Turn over to Genesis 3. You need to read it for yourself. It's a great little verse. It's the first time that a hint of the Gospel is spoken in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. And this is the passage where God is pronouncing judgment upon Satan the serpent and upon the woman and upon the man. It's a very dark, stormy judgment passage. But just sort of embedded right in this judgment text is this amazing Hopeful promise. And it comes in Genesis 3.15. It's verse 15. And this is where, where God is pronouncing judgment on the serpent. And He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. 
He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. And so it's like, what? Where'd that come from? I, there's all this judgment on Adam and Eve and all of a sudden God says, but wait a minute, I'm going to do something. There's going to be this someone who's going to come who's a descendant of the woman and he is going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to overcome the evil and sin in the world, the chaos. And in the process, he's going to have his own heel cut. So he's going to be wounded himself. And so we go, what does that mean? Who is it? How is it going to happen? It doesn't say. It's as if in the middle of all the swirling chaos of Genesis 3 as sin enters the world, God speaks and this one grain of God's Word falls into the tornado. And even though the wind is swirling around at hurricane force, this grain of God's Word is so solid it doesn't blow around. It just falls down and hits the ground with an eternal solidity. God has spoken into the storm. And this one grain says, I'm going to do something. He will, crush you, he, will, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What does that mean? We'll see. And so the rest of the Old Testament then begins with that hope and it expands upon it. And so that's the, really the Old Testament. It's the story of like an hourglass, one grain at a time, one promise at a time, one act of God at a time falling into this hopeless world as God begins what we call progressive revelation. He begins to reveal progressively what He intends to do to bring about the destruction of all that is evil in the world and the kingdom of God forever and to reconcile a people to Himself. That's the whole story of the Old Testament. Uh, and, you know, It goes to Abraham where God says, through you all the nations will be blessed. And then it goes to... You know Moses, and there's the sacrificial system pointing to the cross, and there's the Passover lamb pointing to the cross, and then you get King David, who's this ideal king, but he falls short, he has shortcomings, so he's a foreshadowing of Christ, but not the fulfillment himself. And so you get all of these things in the Old Testament just kind of piling up and piling up until you finally come to the time of Jesus. And by now the Jewish people had all of the prophets and all of the history and all of Moses to kind of inform them of this hope. And, and now they're waiting for a Messiah who will bring the kingdom of God, but they've missed this one point, that the Messiah would be crucified and would suffer. That's the one part of the story they've really missed out, which is, of course, the most important part. <laughs> and they missed that. They missed Isaiah chapter 53, and they didn't understand that the Messiah would suffer. And so that's what Jesus, going back to Luke 24, is telling them. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. I'm the fulfillment of all these hopes, starting with Genesis 3.15 and moving forward through the Old Testament. It's all coming to fulfillment in Christ. You know, my wife and I just got back from uh, vacation in England. It was so great. I, I'd never been to England before. It was our 15th anniversary, so we went and... Uh, we hiked everywhere because England is totally covered in footpaths. It, it's a really neat thing. There's all these public footpaths. There, there are over 140,000 miles of registered footpaths in England. And that doesn't count the unregistered ones. So it's almost like in England you could parachute in anywhere, find a footpath, and follow it to London eventually. You could get there from there. You know, Like they say, you can't get here from there. You can in England. You just follow the footpaths and you come to London. And that's kind of how it is with the Old Testament. You can open up to any part of the Old Testament, no matter how obscure, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, anywhere, and you can eventually start finding your way to Jesus because it's all 
woven together and culminating in Christ. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm it. I'm the fulfillment. And so He's trying to tell the disciples, look, there's a story that's going on here. This is not random and meaningless and chaotic and scary. You know, God is at work in and through even the bad events of this world. God has a purpose. And His purpose is coming to culmination. And it's ultimately in Jesus dying and rising again. And now here's the really cool part. We can become part of the story of God. We can be written in as characters in this story. That's what I think the rest of this passage is about. Because not only do the the Scriptures prophesy that the Christ will suffer and rise on the third day, but that we can be rescued out of the poltergeist room you know, and put on a footpath leading to the kingdom of God and eternal life. God rescues us and He writes us into the story so that our lives are not just purposeless, but that we become part of God's purpose and God's story, not just props or extras, but actually active characters in the novel that God is writing of redemption. And so this is the hope that we have. I like how this one um, commentator put it when I was studying Luke. This is how he wrote it. He said, Jesus first inscribes His own story, the story of the Messiah who suffers and is raised, into the scriptural story, and then inscribes the story of the early church into both His own story and that of the Scriptures. And so we're being written into the narrative. God is taking us from meaninglessness and sin and writing us into the story of the Kingdom of God. Uh, how specifically do we experience this being included in God's meta-narrative? And I think in verses 47 to 49, I see at least two ways, there's probably more, but two ways in which we are included into the story of what God is doing. And the first way is this. The first way is through experiencing forgiveness for our sins. In fact, I would say forgiveness is the doorway through which we enter into the world of God's purpose and meaning. And that really makes sense, doesn't it? Because, well, look at the text first, then we'll talk about it. It says in verse 47, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so forgiveness is the beginning. That's how we first experience God's story. You have to be forgiven. Uh, which is, I, I love that word forgiveness. Isn't it a wonderful thought to be forgiven? There's no greater freedom than to have your sins forgiven by God. It's the greatest freedom there is. It's the greatest privilege there is to be in a right relationship with your Creator. You can do whatever you want to me, but if I'm forgiven in Christ, it doesn't matter. I have God as my Father. And so forgiveness is the great gospel gift through justification that God holds out to us. And that forgiveness is for us. It's for all the nations. It comes through the sacrifice of Christ. It's the most important thing that, that God has to give us. And if you think about it, it's what we really need, right? Isn't it kind of logical? What is it that went wrong in the Garden of Eden in the first place? Was it lack of you know, adequate health care? Was it lack of education? Was it you know, lack of high-speed internet? You know, what, what was wrong in the Garden of Eden? It was sin. And because sin entered the world and pulled with it everything else, sin has to be dealt with in our hearts if we are going to enter into the new thing that God is doing. The root issue is us. It's that not only is this world a big poltergeist room, but my soul is like... <laughs> And I need to be forgiven myself. 
And so we come to God and, and this forgiveness is being proclaimed. That's the good news. That we can be forgiven and made right with God for our lives and we can be reconciled to Him. Uh, I, I like this idea of forgiveness being preached to all nations. For some reason I had this image in my head when I was reading that of like the old sort of medieval story where the, there's all these peasants in this medieval village mucking around and this guy rides in on a big horse and he's got like the floppy hat thing with a big feather coming out of it. And he's like, Hear ye, hear ye! And all the people look and, and he's the king's messenger and he unrolls a scroll. You know. And, and he has a message from the king. It's a proclamation that's going out into the kingdom. And he says, By order of the king, all... Rebels, convicts, criminals, thieves, detractors, and opponents of the king are hereby offered pardon, amnesty, acquittal, and forgiveness of all crimes and all debts if you will but bow your knee and turn back to the king and receive his forgiveness. And so this, this proclamation is going out into all the world. It's such a beautiful thing. Like I said, there's nothing greater than God's forgiveness. You know, to know that I stand cleansed in the sight of my Maker, ah, it's the greatest freedom that there is. You know, sometimes people say today, I've heard this, you've probably heard this phrase too. I don't get this phrase. People say, look, you know, man, you just need to forgive yourself. You ever heard that? Maybe you've been told that. You just need to forgive yourself. And I think I know, I think they're talking about like false guilt or something, but. I, I don't, under, don't fully grasp what that means. How can I forgive myself? I'm the one who did... I, I'm the guy who did it wrong. <laughs> who am I to forgive me? That'd be like going into a jail. And there's like some guy behind bars and be like, dude, what you need to do is just pardon yourself and acquit yourself and open up the jail and leave. And the jailer will be like, where are you going? He'll be like, well, I, I pardon myself. You know? <laughs> no. You need the judge to pardon you. And God is the judge. And God offers pardon because Jesus has paid the penalty for my sins. I did the crime. He did the time, so to speak. I broke the laws. He took the punishment for my law-breaking on the cross. And so now there's this amazing gift of freedom where the King Himself has given His own Son so that the rebels hiding in the caves can be forgiven and made full-fledged citizens and servants. That's the forgiveness that God offers. Um, have you ever embraced God's forgiveness for yourself? Have you ever drunk deeply of the, the fresh spring of forgiveness? Have you ever personally turned your heart over to Christ and, and just embraced what He has to offer you afresh? Hmm? Or are you still in the swirl? And you know, maybe the swirl is drinking and drugs and alcohol and women, or maybe the swirl is just working, trying to make money, trying to get a better house and a better car. Maybe the swirl is, you know, whatever it is. There's just so many meaningless things in life. But have we left that behind and said, I repent of my life apart from God and I want to embrace Christ as my Savior? Now, think about it. There's nothing at this very moment. There is nothing keeping you from Christ at this very moment. Except your own stubborn attitude. It's just that you want to be God. How has that worked for you over these years, by the way? <laughs> that's the only thing that's keeping you from Christ is your hard-hearted unbelief. 
And so may God grant His Spirit to soften your heart and give you the, the gift of saving faith. But not only is forgiveness how we enter into the story of God, but once we are forgiven, we're immediately given a job. Right? Because if the original story was we were to be the servants of God, well, once you become forgiven and restored to God's family, you automatically have a job. And that is what? To proclaim the Gospel. Again, look at verse 47. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations. Preached by who? Angels? Aliens? Some guy dragging a sign behind an airplane? You know, who's going to do this? And the answer, of course, is us. We are, go- we are the answer. God uses the forgiven. So, it's like the second you become a Christian, the moment you become a Christian and, and enter into God's story, He puts a hat on you with a feather and sticks you on a horse and gives you a scroll. And you're like, what? Huh? Oh, I, I, I haven't even, I've never been taught how to preach the gospel and I'm not a pastor and uh, I've never been to seminary. You've got to get someone more qualified. He's like, no, no, you're forgiven and you know the gospel. The gospel is real simple. The gospel is verses 46 and 47. You're like, what do I say? Look, go home today, memorize verses 46 and 47 and you will have the gospel in a little nutshell form. Share verses 46 and 47. And you know what? You're also empowered by God to do it. Look at verse 49. He says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So God forgives us, He commissions us, and He empowers us to be His heralds. And so you do not need a seminary degree to proclaim the Gospel. You do need the Holy Spirit. And you need the message. And so take it and do it. (laughs) Take it and do it. And just go out in the power of the Spirit and as God leads you through life, just share your faith. And you know, you know the hard thing for me and all that is, I think the hard thing for me in sharing my faith is just to stay in that mentality of I'm a herald wherever I go. Because what I find is, when I'm in church, it's easy to think about Jesus, but I get out there and everything's swirling. And I'm like, oh, I see, I got this appointment today and I got to get this done and then the kids have to go to that and blah, blah, blah. And it's so easy to get into the mentality of survival and to leave the mentality of being a herald. And I think that's part of living and walking in the Holy Spirit is learning how to stay in a place of, of a consciousness of being God's servant wherever I go. And that's, that's the challenge of the Christian life. How do I stay there? How do I stay there mentally and spiritually? And wherever I go, just be free to serve the Lord. I, uh, I had a little experience of that this week. And I did something this week that like I never do. <laughs> I picked up a hitchhiker. <laughs> I was, I was driving along, and this, this kind of guy was like on the side of the road thumbing. And, and I, you know, I've, I just drive by usually. And I just had that little, like, whatever in your head. I said, pick him up. I'm like, what? You know, I was like, I, you know, I don't do that. So I looked at the guy. I'm like, well, if something goes wrong, I think I can take him. All right, find it. So I, uh, I, I, I pull the car over, and uh, so I, I just pulled the car over. The car opened up, and, and that's when I met Jim. What a nice guy. Works in Hingham and just works the late shift, doesn't have a, a car to get home and uh, just has to walk home. The, the dude's just wiped out from a hard night at work. And so I you know, got in my car, this older guy, and drove him downtown to Hingham and dropped him off. And So, you know, we start talking. He's like, so, you, you on your way to work? I'm like, yeah. And I was actually right, right here. And I said, oh, that's actually where I work, right there. I'm like, I'm the pastor of that church. He's like, oh, really? And, you know, he goes, oh, I've heard of your church. And he's like, so are you Baptist? Did you grow up Baptist? I'm like, no, I kind of grew up nothing. 
And he's like, really? Well, how did you become a Christian? I'm like, well, let me tell you. And <laughs> so I just told the story of how God, how I had come to experience God's forgiveness in my own life through the preaching of the gospel by coming to Jesus, how that changed my life and how he's called me to be a herald and, and how that's worked out in my life. Not that you have to be a pastor to be a herald, but just how that's worked out for me. And uh, then I dropped him off and, you know, who knows what. But and I don't tell that story to brag in any way because, unfortunately, that's the exception rather than the rule in my life. And, and I say that to my shame, uh, that kind of openness to share the gospel with people. But God, I think he gave me that experience this week just to be an illustration to you of how it's supposed to work. Not that you have to pick up hitchhikers necessarily, but, but it's like you, you just go through regular life, except you don't go through it in a regular way. You go through it with an awareness that you're the servant of God and as the Holy Spirit prompts you and leads you in that mysterious way, you speak the name of Christ and you share His love in, in ways that are just natural and, and God will use it and guide you. Um, see, God's kingdom is growing around the world and it's, that story is being repeated a hundred million times over everywhere around the world through all of His disciples. Um, you'll never hear about it on the evening news. Fox News will not talk about this even though it's the most amazing thing happening in the world today. CBS News, MSNBC will not talk about this. But, and you know what? Who cares? That's not their job. <laughs> God's intention was never to publish the gospel through MSNBC. That's not God's plan. God's plan is to publish the gospel through you and me under the radar so that the kingdom of God, as the gospel says, is growing invisibly until Christ returns. As we come here to the communion table, here's the story right in front of us. That the, this is the climax of God's plan, which is that Christ would be crucified for us. Jesus, uh, in a sense, gave us this ritual to enact and tell the story of the Gospel again and again. Jesus gave us two rituals, right? Baptism, communion. Both of them are pictures of the Gospel in motion. Both of them are the story of the Gospel that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And so as we partake of this meal, we come to fellowship with our Lord Jesus who is the real host here at the table. And He is serving us. He served us on the cross and He continues to serve us by strengthening us spiritually. And as we come to this communion table, He's here with us. And He, in, he invites us to come and be strengthened by Him. And so anyone who is a Christian is welcome at this table. If you're not a follower of Christ, I'd invite you just to...